Matthew chapter 14, we want to look at verses uh, 14 through 21, feeding the 5,000 is what I've titled the message here this morning. And let's uh, begin with a word of prayer here. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Uh, Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly as we ever endeavor to rightly divide the word of truth. So, uh, Lord, this is food for our souls. Uh, Lord, may we eat well and and grow in grace as believers. If there's anyone listening that's not yet a believer, we pray that you would work in their hearts to uh, bring them to a a saving faith in Jesus Christ as well. So we commit our time in the Word to you now. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in terms of the the outline, I don't know. Maybe we, there we go. Okay, Uh, we have worked our way through. We are in chapter 14 this morning. So chapters 14 through 16, the revelations of the king. Jesus spent most of the time in his ministry in and around Capernaum in Galilee. The the great proof of him being the Messiah was clearly evident uh, in his teaching, in his character, and in his sign miracles. But now with the death of John the Baptist, the prophesied forerunner, you know, John chapter, or Isaiah chapter 40, 700 years predicted that this forerunner would come on the scene in the wilderness, uh, preparing the way for the Lord. And sure enough, John the Baptist fulfilled that exactly. He was the prophesied forerunner. But now with his death, the religious leaders are clearly shown to be hostile towards Jesus. And the political leaders are antagonistic. The crowds are basically fickle. And even his hometown of Nazareth has now rejected him twice. Therefore, the last year of Christ's ministry became more and more focused particularly upon the twelve apostles in preparing them for the crucifixion and beyond. Still, the multitudes, fickle as they were, were still following Jesus in mass. As far as outward popularity, this really was the high point of Jesus' ministry. And yet the crowds largely had selfish motives in following Christ. They were all about what Christ could do for them physically, but had no real interest in what he could do for them spiritually. They generally thought on a physical, natural plane instead of a spiritual one. After John the Baptist was beheaded... In, as we saw in Matthew 14, verse 13, Jesus withdrew from the area of Capernaum so he could be alone. And we find in the cross-references that in this context, the disciples who had returned from a preaching and teaching mission joined him. They went by boat to a deserted place, hoping to have a time of rest, as we see in Mark 6.31. Now, the cross-reference in Luke 9.10 indicates that this was in the vicinity of Bethsaida. And uh, note uh, this commentary here. The reason this is significant is because we believe they went away to Bethsaida, and yet when they left Bethsaida, it says they were crossing the sea to go back to Bethsaida. Well, that can be confusing. Well, here's the explanation. Uh, There is a geographical difficulty about the location of Bethsaida. The simplest solution seems to be that Bethsaida Julius, east of the Jordan, spread across to the western side of the Jordan and was called Bethsaida in Galilee, a fishing suburb of Capernaum. 
So it would seem, as we consider this, that we really have two Bethsaida's. You've got this one over here in Galilee, and then this one up here, Julius. Now, it seems that this is where Jesus and his disciples came, in this area right here, uh, somewhere around here. But then later, when they leave, they're headed back over to Bethsaida uh, over here in Galilee. So there's no contradiction when you realize there's really two Bethsaida's. Well, in context, uh, again, it seems that Jesus and his disciples had gone by boat from the area around Capernaum to the area close to Bethsaida, uh, Julius, to sort of get away from it all. But when the crowds got wind of it, they pursued them on foot, coming around the top of the horn of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where we pick it up, chapter 14 and verse 14. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them. And healed their sick. When Jesus went out is the sense that Jesus came out from a secluded area to address a great multitude that was now gathering. The emphasis on Christ's miracles consistently had signed value regarding his identity. And that's also true here, as we find in the cross-reference of, say, John 6.2 and John 6.26. However, there were also other important lessons that Christ's miracles brought out. Here in Matthew, we find the emphasis being not merely on the power of Christ, but also on the character of his compassion. And as we follow the narrative, we find in particular the feeding of the 5,000 is intended to teach the disciples an important lesson, which also has application for us as well. Now, it would be nice to think that these multitudes, these these massive crowds that were following Jesus, were pursuing him because of appreciation for who he was. But as seen in John chapter 6, that was not the case. They were basically following Jesus for what they could get out of him. And you know, when that happens, it never ends well. Uh, Their motives were essentially selfish and not spiritual. Note the cross... Uh, reference here in John chapter 6. It says there, Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. People like healing. I mean, if you're legitimately healing people, you'll get a crowd. There's no doubt about that. And that was happening in Jesus' ministry at this point. Verse 26 goes on to say, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs in the sense that they appreciated the sign value. But because you ate of the loaves and were filled, they liked free lunch as well. They liked healing. They liked free lunch. Now, the word compassion is an emotional word. It literally means to be moved in one's bowels. Now, that seems strange to our ears, but this is where the ancients considered the emotions and the feelings to reside. To be moved with compassion means to be moved with deep feelings of care and concern. And consequently, Jesus healed their sick. The word sick means to be weak or without strength, describing any number of physical maladies. But here we see the heart of God as represented in Christ, as being compassionate, even towards those who are largely fickle towards him. You know, God could just smash the world at any point if he wanted to, but he doesn't do that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
And I'm so glad that, that God doesn't just start loving us when we start loving him. Because if that was the case, it would never happen. Uh, we have in 1 John 4.19, these words, we love him because he first loved us. And then in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves his enemies. He makes the first move towards reconciliation. And God always makes the first move. Depravity never initiates a move towards God. In the garden, after the fall, it wasn't Adam who went looking for God, was it? He wasn't wandering around the garden saying, God, God, where are you? No, rather it was God who came looking for Adam saying, Adam, where are you? Romans 3.11 is very clear that there is none who seeks after God. Praise God for his intervening mercy and compassion that he does care. Sadly, even after divine intervention, many continue to spurn the mercy and grace of God. But for us as believers, it's wonderful to realize that the very nature of our God is that he is a compassionate God. He cares about human frailty, human need, and human hurting. We read in Psalm 103, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And then 1 Peter 5, 7, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, evidently, the crowd continued to gather throughout the day, as seen in John chapter 6, verse 15. Back to our, our text here in Matthew 14, verse 15. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place. And we were out in the middle of nowhere here. And the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go to the villages and buy themselves food. Now, the term evening had two meanings for the Jews. It could refer to late afternoon, 3 to 6 o'clock, or it could refer to the time just prior to sunset. Whatever the specific time frame, in this deserted place, it was getting late in the day, evidently getting very late for the people to make it all the way back home to the Capernaum area from this deserted place. And so if they waited much longer, these people, now hungry, were going to be stranded. And you know, you get a bunch of hungry and stranded people. Something just fell out of here on me. If you get a bunch of hungry and stranded people in a deserted area, it's not a good thing. Uh, it's not good for a great multitude of people to be together in that context. Things could get ugly in that situation. Could have a lot of fighting over five loaves and two fishes. The solution as proposed by the disciples this kind of an urgent situation, was that this crowd of people needed to be sent on their way ASAP so they can fend for themselves along the way on their way home. It evidently never crossed their minds that there might be another option. In the cross-reference of John 6, we find a little more background as to what is happening here. Uh, notice what we have stated there. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. They're still pouring in. And he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? 
But he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. It wasn't like Jesus saying, well, I have no idea what we're going to do about this. He knew. But he's testing, Philip here in this case, really testing the disciples. Now, the whole issue of the need for food was being used by Jesus as a test for his disciples, who have been learning from Jesus for up to uh, about two years now, uh, up close and personal for now about two years. Now, keep that in mind as we work our way through the narrative. Yes, there was sign value for the crowds in terms of the miracle that he's going to perform, But the emphasis here is primarily on what Jesus is wanting to teach the disciples. Now, a footnote here. This miracle of feeding the 5,000 is the only miracle, other than the resurrection, that is addressed in all four Gospels. The Gospels record about 35 specific pre-resurrection miracles performed by Christ, but... Only the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all the Gospels. This shows the importance of it. There are some deep lessons that God wants us to see here. This miracle comes at a climactic turning point in the Lord's ministry, as seen in John chapter 6. started out as a high point of popularity in terms of the outward following. But by the time it was over, many went away. So much so that Jesus says at the end of John chapter 6, he says to the disciples, do you also want to go away? I mean, this is the high point, it seems, in terms of the the masses of people that were following Jesus. And by the time it was over, they all went away. So much so, or so many went away, that he says to the disciples, how about you? You guys also going to go away? Of course, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Verse 16. Concern about, uh, you know, the hungry multitudes. Verse 16, but Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now the disciples in their human way of thinking said, send the multitudes away. But Jesus said, you, you disciples, give them something to eat. Now what did Christ really expect them to do? Obviously, this was a human impossibility, as the text goes on to show. Wycliffe Bible Commentary says, Christ intended to awaken in them an awareness that association with him included provision for every need. Yes, this was an impossible command apart from Jesus. But when Jesus is present, all things are possible. They were overlooking the Jesus factor, which looking back on the last couple of years, they should not have done. In fact, they had just recently returned from a mission where because of Christ's authority, they were able to perform all kinds of miracles. So they should have known at this point that when Jesus tells you to do something, it's possible. Jesus himself makes it possible. They have been with him for two years. They should have known this. But note verse 17. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. They were thinking only about their own limited human resources. John 6, 7 says that Philip, who, by the way, was from this area, calculated that it would take more than 200 denarii to feed this crowd, which amounted to about eight 
month's worth of wages. Now, in our culture, that would uh, normally translate to about $40,000 for the meal that's needed. You know, that, that's not pocket change, at least not for most of us, right? That's a lot to come up with on the fly for one meal in, out in a desolated area. Even if you have the funds, where are you going to get the food? Again, they were not really thinking beyond themselves and what they could do independently. They were not factoring in the Lord, which was the very thing they needed to do. And how often it is as we go through life to kind of just grab well, things without factoring in the Lord. It's, it's so human to do that. A big part of the lesson here is that they needed to take what they had and give it to Jesus. Little is much when God is in it. According to John 6, 9, the loaves were barley bread, which was made of common grain, often used to feed livestock. However, the poor people, as uh, they ate it, they often mixed in wheat or more expensive grains to make it taste better, and also it would go further. The point is, what they had to offer was not much and of virtually no significant value. But this is often what God uses. You know, I think one can be too big for God to use, but not too small. Uh, Judges 7 presents the story of Gideon, who started out with an army of 32,000. That doesn't sound like uh, it's an overwhelming large army when you consider that the enemy is stated to have 135,000. So you're really still the underdog, right? You've got 32,000, and the enemy's got 135,000. But here's what God said in relationship to that army. Gideon's army. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. It's so human to take the glory for ourselves when it rightfully belongs to God alone. And so God often takes a very little, impossible thing and works in such a way that he alone will get the glory. And he has to make it real obvious. Because otherwise people tend to try to take some credit. God reduced Gideon's army down to 22,000. But it was still too large. Finally, God reduced Gideon's army down to only 300 men. And said it would be by this tiny little itty bitty force that he would defeat the enemy forces of 135,000 troops. Now, God put Gideon in an impossible situation so that he alone might get the glory. And this is commonly how God works, right down to our calling. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, you see your calling, brethren. This is us, right? You see your calling. Not many wise. Amen. Not many wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. Who has God chosen? God has chosen, largely, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Base things of the world and things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, literally nothings, things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why has God worked this way? That no flesh should glory in his presence. 
You know, the Chinese Christian leaders have a saying that says, don't touch the girls, don't touch the gold, and don't touch the glory. Amen. That's a pretty good summary. The glory belongs to God alone. Don't be a glory robber. Because if you try to do so, you'll lose your reward. And in the end, God will get the glory anyway. John MacArthur says, God often uses the small things to greater effectiveness than the things that are thought to be the greatest and most promising. You know, it's so easy in our human way of thinking to put stock in the powerful and the great. We think, if, oh, if we just had a few of those prominent people on our site, we would really make an impact. I mean, if only we had a few famous actors that got saved, that would really help our cause. I mean, if we could just have some well-known, famous athletes. If only the president would get saved. This is our hope. Politicians, you know. Now, I'm all for them getting saved. But even if they don't get saved, uh, let me say this, even if they do get saved, let's not put them out in front too quickly as a leading spokesman for Christianity. You know, time after time we see these high-profile figures make a profession of faith, and so often they turn out to be an embarrassment to the cause of Christ. Either they prove not to be genuine, or they are pushed out in front in the limelight, and they're not ready to take a strong stand. They don't have the maturity for it, and they stumble badly. We keep thinking, well, God could really use a Goliath. And God continues to use the small Davids. Most of the time, whom God chooses to use are nobodies serving in the trenches. Now, I didn't say not any, so there's a few of those prominent, mighty ones, but not many. Most of the time, God works quietly behind the scenes, mostly using those whom the world considers foolish, weak, base, despise, nothing. Welcome to the fellowship. And he does this so that he might get the glory. I mean, if he can use a guy such as me, I mean, this has to be God. The world does not really champion giving much glory to foolish, weak, base, despise, nothings. But that's whom God uses, mostly. But we do want to note, in balance here, that God does use people. In the process of what he is doing, God is perfectly capable of doing whatever he wants to do without us, without any contribution from us. But he chooses to use us in our smallness, in the small contribution we have to make. And in this way, he brings glory to his own wisdom and power. The glory is all about God and what he does, but he uses people in the process. And that was the case here. Jesus didn't need to use the disciples, but he wanted to use them, meager as their contribution was. John MacArthur says, God used a baby's cry to move the heart of Pharaoh's daughter and a shepherd's crook to work mighty miracles in Egypt. He used a boy and his slingshot to slay Goliath and rout the Philistine army. He used a poverty-stricken widow to sustain Elijah and a young girl to lead the leprous Naaman to Elisha. He used Balaam's donkey to teach his truth and the jawbone of another donkey to slay a thousand men. He used a little child to teach the disciples humility. And he used one boy's lunch to feed 25,000 people. The disciples were thinking about their own lack 
instead of the sufficiency found in Christ. They needed to learn, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if Christ tells you to do something, you can do it. Not because of you, but because of him. So they were thinking about their inadequacy. And Christ said, verse 18, he said to them, bring them here to me. Your meager little portion. Bring it to me. What a great truth. Christ says to do the impossible, but obviously he needs to be included in on it for it to happen. He said to them, you, you give them something to eat. But then he says, bring them here to me. There's no contradiction. They are going to feed the people, but it's going to be through Christ as the source. Doing great things for God starts with bringing whatever we have to offer to Jesus. God takes the little we have to offer and does something great with it. Showing that it's really all his doing. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he commanded him, Lazarus, come forth. And then we read, Next verse, John eleven forty four, And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. He must have been quite a sight. Imagine if he lifted up and said, boo. <laughs> Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. What is so interesting here is that Jesus did the impossible, raising the dead. But then he commanded the people to do what they could do. Loose him and let him go. I mean, he could have just brought him out unloosed already, Right? And so it was with the disciples. Jesus commanded them to do the little thing they could do. They gathered what was available and they brought it to Jesus to do what they couldn't do. The older I get, the more I come back to this little verse in John 15, 5, which I have often referred to as my life verse. And it reads this way. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Zip, nada, nothing. Yes, the disciples were about to feed the 5,000, but not without Jesus. Without him, they could do nothing. What a lesson. He was saying, in effect, I knew that you did not have sufficient food or money. To feed the people. I knew that you had no way of getting it. I never expected you to feed them from your own resources or by your own power. In asking you to feed them, I was asking you to trust me. Without having to tell you, I was giving you the opportunity to bring to me the little that you had and trust me for the rest. Verse 19, having brought it to Jesus. Verse 19, then he commanded the multitudes to sit on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed it and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. Once again, we see the lordship of Christ on display. He's always in charge because he's the Lord. He commanded the multitudes to sit on the grass. In Mark 6, we find they were seated in orderly groups of, uh, groups of 50 and groups of 100. John Phillips says this, <clears throat> God is a God of order. All creation proclaims that fact. All science is predicated on that fact. 
The Lord Jesus, God manifest in the flesh, was devoted to order. So he had the people sit down by companies. So they were all orderly there. And then Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and blessed it. He broke it and then gave to the disciples, who then distributed to the multitudes. Now, it was common for the head of a Jewish family to lead in prayer before a meal. A common prayer was, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. Now, apparently, that phrase here, broke and gave to the disciples, involved a continuous, ongoing creation process until the 20,000 or so that were there were all served. Jesus just kept on breaking off more and more and more food and handing it to the disciples, and they were serving the, the various groups of 50 or 100. Can you imagine the festive atmosphere that must have erupted? Can you imagine the, the flavor and the goodness of this food created and provided directly from God in the flesh himself? It had to be good. I don't think anybody said, you know, it doesn't taste quite right. <laughs> I don't think so. And this was a creation miracle. Only, only the creator can create new things. We, on a limited basis as people, have the potential to make things out of other things in proportion to what we are using. But Christ here created new additional realities, all out of proportion to the already existing reality. Only the creator can make brand new additional realities. This was a God thing. And of course, we know Christ is ultimately the creator, of course, the whole trinity. But here in John 1, 3, speaking of Christ, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. I mean, he was involved in all of it. Colossians 1, 16, speaking of Christ, by him, all things were created. That are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him. In creation, we see God's lordship on display over all things. God's creation power shows his authority over his creation and his right to do with it as he pleases. This is established throughout the scriptures. One of the names for Messiah in the Old Testament is that of Yahweh, the most sacred name for God. And Yahweh is shown to be creator God. Jesus shows here that he is the true Messiah Yahweh, creator God, by commanding nature to do his bidding. For example, we will see next week, Lord willing, Jesus could walk on the water and command the sea waves. Only the creator has sovereign control over nature. Only he could do this. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. The power to create was unique to the Messiah. Yahweh Messiah. Messiah Lord. Who was God come in the flesh. You see, it's interesting to study this. <clears throat> the apostles were supernaturally empowered by Christ in a limited way. To a limited extent, they too were given power over disease and demons. But I want you to get this. Christ alone did miracles 
over nature. Only Christ did creation miracles, such as we see here in the feeding of the 5,000, because he alone can do what God can do, because he alone is Messiah God. This whole episode has very strong messianic overtones. There's a whole series of psalms that have a messianic theme. Someday I kind of just like to maybe teach through the messianic psalms. There's a lot of them. And one of these messianic psalms is Psalm 132. And in the context of that messianic psalm, emphasizing the Messiah, we have this statement. Psalm 132.15, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. God is shown to be doing this in a greater messianic context. In addition, when the people experienced Jesus feeding this massive multitude, they perceived that this was the messianic prophet foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Back there in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God, Moses is speaking, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, the greatest prophet in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, one who, you know, spoke face to face with God and, and brought forth revelation and, and God used in an unparalleled way in terms of mer- miracles. And he says, you know, he's going to raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you will hear. He's going to speak with authority. So as Jesus fed the multitudes, the, the 5,000, we find in John six fourteen. then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. This is, the, this is what Moses was talking about. Furthermore, in John 6, the people had eaten of Christ's miraculous provision of bread the day before. The next day, were then pressing him to do more. I mean, we liked it yesterday. How about today? And so they were pressing him to do more, reminiscent of the manna their fathers had from heaven in the Old Testament. They were thinking in terms that connected back to God's ongoing provision of manna in the Old Testament. Stanley Toussaint says, The Jews had a tradition that the Messiah would miraculously feed the people with bread from heaven as Moses had done. And that is why in John 6, 30 and 31, the people challenged Jesus saying, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? And then they proceeded to tell him how their fathers ate manna in the desert. Evangelical commentary on the Bible, such an act in such a place, a deserted place, recalls Yahweh's miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness and declares Jesus to be Yahweh incarnate. Well, Jesus then used this bread theme to segue to the ultimate issue that was being illustrated. Jesus often segued from the physical to the spiritual, and he did so here. As we move through John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, they missed the point. God was the one who provided manna in the Old Testament, and he was the one who provided the spiritual bread of life as found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus went on to say to them in John 6, 34, Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. They have no clue what he's really saying, but they're saying, we like, we like this idea of ongoing bread. And Jesus said to them, I 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. They were thinking merely on physical, natural terms. But the deeper spiritual truth being shown to them was that Jesus is Messiah God, who is the spiritual bread of life, giving the sustenance of eternal life to all who will believe in him. They needed to see Jesus as Messiah Lord, who is creator God incarnate. But alas, they failed to believe in him for who he was as the prophesied Messiah God. They liked free lunch and wanted a Messiah who would do their bidding and do stuff for them like provide healing and food. We like that. In fact, they liked it so much they wanted to force the issue, but Christ's Messiahship must be accepted on his terms. And his terms are namely him Believing in him for who he is, he must be recognized as Lord who calls the shots, not the people. And so we see in John 6, 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. MacArthur says they were right that he was the Messiah, but they were wrong about the kind of Messiah he was. He was not the political deliverer or food supplier they were expecting. And his coronation was not in their power to perform. As Jesus declared later, his kingdom is not of this world. Well, this time of Jesus again departing segues into our study for next week where we find Jesus walking on the water. But one more thing to note. The Jews knew from the Old Testament scriptures that when Messiah comes, he would provide a messianic banquet, of which this was kind of a foreshadowing. This event feeding the 5,000 had messianic overtones written all over it, which the people acknowledged. And yet they completely missed the central point of who Jesus really is as Messiah God. In this miracle of feeding the 5,000, there are layers of things being taught and illustrated. Jesus was teaching the disciples, but also illustrating the great truth of him being Messiah, who is Yahweh God in the flesh, doing what only the Creator God can do. That is, namely, create new things. And as such, he is the bread of life for all who will believe in him. But note it well. Jesus said to the disciples, you give them something to eat. And then in verse 19, it says... The disciples gave to the multitudes. So indeed, the disciples did, in fact, give the people something to eat. But here is the point. They only did so because of Jesus. Jesus was the source. And he's always the source of all that we have to offer the people to bring about lasting satisfaction in their lives. Again, the deeper application relates to spiritual realities and not merely physical realities. We bring to people the truth of the bread of life as ministers of reconciliation. But the real source behind our feeding the people is Christ himself. Verse 20, so they all ate, and they were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. No one went away hungry on this day. The Lord's provision was sufficient, and even more than sufficient. Christ's provision is always sufficient for all of our ultimate needs. When all were filled, they took up 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, why is that in there? Uh, I mean, why not uh, 13? 
or five or whatever number you want to throw out there. Why 12? Well, we're not told, and so we don't know for sure. But my guess, this is just my guess, my guess is that the Lord orchestrated this outcome to impress his provision upon the disciples, especially in relation to what he had asked them as his 12 disciples to do. Remember that a key emphasis throughout this whole text has to do with Christ testing and teaching the 12 disciples in particular. Without Christ, they could do nothing. But with Christ, there was more than sufficient provision as impressed upon the 12, as seen in the 12 full baskets of more than was needed. God's grace is always over the top sufficient. John writes, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, grace piled upon grace. Paul writes to the Corinthians, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. It's amazing how God's grace never runs out. He supplies our needs according to his riches in glory. Hudson Taylor said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's provision. Certainly in keeping with his will, he always provides, and very consistently, in abundance. Verse 21, Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. 5,000 men had eaten. And you know, men can eat a lot. But this does not include the women and the children. Now, it is noted that many women were followers of Christ. It seems like, in fact, <laughs> maybe even a majority of the multitude. We don't know. Uh, but many women are noted other places in the Gospels to be followers of Christ. But exactly how many ate this? You know, were, it seems like maybe whole families. I doubt the kids were out there by themselves. So it seems like there were whole families that were following at this point, too. But exactly how many ate at this Messianic banquet? We are not told specifically. Estimates are anywhere from 10,000 to 25,000. Anyway you measure it, this was a large crowd that Jesus miraculously fed on this day. But here's the bottom line point in terms of application. Where am I? I guess I'm there, and now I'm here. All right. The significance of this miracle was intended primarily for the disciples. Jesus was illustrating the kind of ministry they would have after his departure. They would be involved in feeding the people, but with spiritual food. The source of their feeding would be the Lord himself. He would supply them, but the feeding would be done through them. After his resurrection, when the Lord restored Peter, what was a key emphasis that he made with him? He said to him, feed my sheep. People need to be fed God's supernatural provision. William MacDonald says, The miracle is a spiritual lesson for disciples of every generation. The hungry multitude is always present. There's always a little band of disciples with seemingly pitiful resources. And always there is a compassionate Savior. When the disciples are willing to give him their little all, he multiplies it to feed the multitudes. When it comes to the new covenant spiritual work, of changed lives. Only God can provide the food to do that. As Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But note, God does it by using us as servers 
in the process. What's our, what's our place? We're the servers. I mean, that's what the disciples were. They were just the servers. I mean, Jesus said, feed them. Well, how? Well, it would come from Jesus, the source. But they were the servers. You know, I often say, I'm just the delivery boy. We really don't make over delivery boys too much, do we? No, we appreciate what they deliver. But they're just the delivery boy. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, verse 15, 16... We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And then Paul asks this question. And who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to be this aroma of Christ? That's a great question. Who is sufficient for these things? Well, a few verses later, in chapter 3, verse 5, he answers the question. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. A Christian was struggling with a heavy burden. And in his prayers, he would often say, it's just you and me, Lord. It's just you and me. But as time went along, he altered his prayers to say, It's just you, Lord. As Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. I mean, he's the major player, but yet he wants to use us in the process as well. We're the servers. We're just the delivery person. God help us to rely on him. He himself is our sufficiency. Without him, we can do nothing. Let's stand and have our closing song.